podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. If you haven't played Paddy Power Fantasy yet, you're missing out. But on the upside, if you haven't played it yet, you qualify for a risk-free first go. Get up to £20 back as cash when you play Paddy Power Fantasy. And because every NFL game day is a season in itself, you don't have to wait to find out if you've won. Paddy Power Fantasy. Hate waiting, love winning. New customer offer. Min £5, max £20 refund. T's and C's apply. Paddy Power Fantasy rules apply. 18 plus, begumbleware.org. Hello and welcome to the Nat Coombe Show presented by Paddy Power Fantasy. I and Mike and the Deep Dive coming your way. We'll also check in with Ben Isaacs looking back at a remarkable season and a remarkable win for LSU in the college championship. Joe Burrow, NFL bound, you lucky Bengals fans, you. Lots to be getting into, but we'll lead off with Iron Mike. Iron Mike, what's occurring? What's occurring <laughs> every day? Ed Orgeron. It's Ed Orgeron day. Um, I, I think, think Ed, I didn't know that. Mm. I think Ed's going to take a job with the WWF as the new George the Animal Steel once his college football <laughs> career, uh, coaching career is over. He'd be absolutely perfect for the role. He would be. I mean, he, I mean, he would be perfect full stop for WWE. And um, uh, I love the uh, mid-80s old school reference there. Uh, kids, go and look up George the Animal Steel <laughs> yeah. and his crush on Miss Elizabeth. Uh, You'll have you fun. You'll have yeah. a lot of fun. I also <laughs> like when he's when he was like walking into the stadium in his suit and he's pounding his chest mm-hmm. and he's got these like f- four Louisiana State troopers <laughs> protecting him from the crowd in New Orleans. Uh, it's like brilliant. your tax dollars at work. I wonder if uh, he, when he is the kind of guy that gets very emotional at TV adverts. <laughs> I think he might be. I think underneath all the bravado, he wells up when he's watching he, John he Lewis is, Christmas. He's an, he's an emotional guy, and it's something that the Cleveland Browns maybe should have paid attention to. <laughs> oh, I like that link, I Mike. There's a lot we're going to get into. We're going to talk a bit of free agency. You've got your top five as well. Uh, appropriately enough, your top five. Conference Championship games, seeing as we are heading to Conference Championship weekend. Uh, we pushed something out on, on social media, on Monday's show, actually, with Tom Deacon, Mike, which then rolled out, Alex and the boys rolled out on social media. The weirdest place uh, listeners have watched a game. We've got some goodies there um, because Tom watched uh, the 49ers divisional game at the Comedy Store backstage before he, was, he went on stage, did his gig. Uh, came off and was watching it in between, which was fun. So we've got quite a few of those and a deep dive mailbag as well for you. So lots to be talking about, but we'll lead off with the Browns and Kevin Stefanski. So the final team, Mike, to get their head coach sorted out of the ones that jettison the top guy at the end of the season or in the Redskins case during the season uh, and the Panthers for that matter as well. So they were the last team to get their ducks in a row, presumably do you think because Stefanski was always going to be their, their guy and they were waiting for the Vikings to uh, exit stage left, or do you think they had to compromise here? What, what's your take on Stefanski to the Browns? Um, that's what I said on this show last week. <laughs> so my take is pretty obvious. I thought I thought he was going there, and and he's going there. And um, I thought they they liked the idea of Stefanski because young, smart coordinator. But really, in one sense, Kevin Stefanski is just Freddie Kitchens in a suit. Um, kind of a presentable Freddie Kitchens. No, no, you called it on last week's show, but do you think that was a compromise because some of the other pieces had come off the board? No, not at all. Um, and, and you know, apparently McDaniels was supposed to interview afterwards. Um, there were a couple of other people who were supposed to interview afterwards. But um, 
I think I, I just had this sense and call it a hunch, call it whatever, that that he was the guy they wanted because he, he was sort of a young and slick offensive coordinator. Now, I'm not convinced that Kevin Stefanski was the brains behind the um, Minnesota offense. I think their offense isn't all that much different, and what differences there are might be attributable more to Gary Kubiak uh, mm-hmm. than to Stefanski. But on a bigger picture – This is why I was thinking of Ed Orgeron. Tom Boswell has a great essay in uh, one of his books of baseball essays about the four kinds of baseball managers. And he went back over every guy who had ever managed a thousand games in in Major League Baseball, and he lumped them into four categories, which fit really well, with the exception of four or five guys who were like star players who became managers, who who, um, and none of them became great managers. But but one of one of the types was was um what he called the um, the tall the tall uh, leader the, or the fearless leader or the, you know the um, the guy who sits there with like a a, ro- a, a, a rock hard jaw and, and pushes people and, and and to an extent and football's different than baseball in the sense that football's much more strategic and, and tactical um, on the, on the big scale, but to, in a sense, when you have a team, that's a disciplinary problem. When, Mm. when you think that your management has been too loose, sometimes the best thing to do is to bring in someone who just kicks butt and the team reacts to that. And then when, you know, when that starts to wear off, when, when the charm of having someone who's always blaming the players and not the coach, um, you know, the buddy Ryan factor, who's, who's who's not going to let you play unless you kill yourself for him and all that kind of stuff. When that wears off, then you bring in another guy who, who treats the players differently and, and is maybe a tactical is a tactical genius. And, and I just had the sense that maybe Cleveland should have gone for someone who's more of a big picture guy because we've talked about it a lot um, over the years and certainly in the last two, uh, couple of years about the way that coordinate being a great coordinator does not necessarily make you a great head coach. Um, and when you've got a young coordinator without a proven track record stepping in like, like say in, in um, green Bay this year, the question is, can he bring the team around with him, um, or does he have someone on his staff who can? You know, right. and, and that's why I thought like Sean McVay sticking with Wade Phillips as defensive coordinator was a good idea three years ago. Um, mm-hmm. Why in Green Bay, Mike Pettin is still the uh, defensive coordinator there. You know, it, it sort of helps to to have that, to have that figure there. So, I mean, I'm nothing against Stefanski. Um, you know, I, I thought. I thought he um, he was the right guy last year when they when they finally handed him the play calling uh, responsibility rather rather than John D. Filippo. But whether he is enough of a force there, I don't know. Mike Zimmer is that you know makes that team. Um, they do what Mike Zimmer wants, and, and sure. Zimmer Zimmer strangely enough was congratulating Gary Kubiak after the after the loss, you know, just saying how much he had meant to the team this year without mentioning Stefanski. And, and mm. that, that just, to me, I'm not sure Stefanski will have the gravitas. Now, maybe he comes in and turns Baker Mayfield into a great quarterback, which well, I'm sure, point I'm sure been, that's the core reason why they hired him. He's been at the Vikings since 2009, Mike, and during that time has been a positional coach, uh, various different 
ways. But quarterbacks, a recurring theme, he was the assistant quarterbacks coach initially. Then he held that position 2017 to 18 before he moved into the offensive coordinator role. So quite clearly that has a, a significant impact. That means they're backing Baker Mayfield. What's your perspective? Is the jury, is the Carlson jury still out on, on Mayfield in so far as, I suppose let's look at different trajectories for him. Either he's a total bust and he kind of bounces out at the NFL or, or to a kind of career backup role. He plods along in a, you know, low twenties, uh, level rank quarterback for three, four years and bounces out or he kicks on and becomes a top 10, top 12 quarterback in the NFL. Where do you think he's likely to end up? I think he's a quarterback who needs to be handled and put into the right system in order to be successful. Um, he needs a little bit to learn to learn how to overcome some of his shortcomings in terms of vision and um, and release. I thought last year what Freddie Kitchens did was good, but but this year, teams sort of figured out what what Freddie was trying to do, and he couldn't come up with new wrinkles for that. I think I think I said when when Mayfield was drafted that his upside was sub Drew Brees, but his downside was Tim Rattay or someone someone like that, mm. which which was probably cruel. Mark Bulger maybe would have been more um, more. Uh, accurate to, uh, as his downside, but but oh, I, Mark Bulger, that's a name I haven't heard for a while. Yeah, Blimey. well, I'm surprised <laughs> you remember Tim Rante. Um But um, but I, I think that's that's the case. Is he's going to have to play in a Baker friendly offense, which is something Stefanski can probably do. And I think it it has to run heavily on play action. You Baker's not going to be a drop back quarterback. I think I think that's one of the things that they have to recognize. Um, and and they really have to build it around. Nick Chubb as much as Baker Mayfield. You know, if if Ryan Tannehill can you know have his have his skills um, released, as it were, you know, put on display by throwing by throwing what 15, 19 passes a game behind <laughs> sure. Derrick Henry, there's no reason why Baker Mayfield can't do something similar. Um, and, and, you know, I think Tannehill is probably a better quarterback than Baker Mayfield at this point, but, but, you know, that's, that, that's kind of where they should be going. One more on, on the Browns that we'll get into free agency and what could happen in that respect. You talk, uh, we've talked a lot about the, the culture at the Browns, not just the, the egos and it's a, a certain type of locker room to be presiding over and trying to get in some kind of order and, and take control of that. But also the Browns are amongst the most, um, unsuccessful franchises in the NFL. And you think of, uh, I always think of the one of the Bill Walsh books when he's talking about going into San Francisco. It's easy to forget that when Walsh went in there, it was a losing culture and they were a mess. And he went from top to bottom and built this approach to work, not just what happened on the field, but throughout the organization. And that's a, obviously a big thing uh, that Walsh uh, factored into the way he ran things that a lot of people have uh, mimicked. What do you think the situation with the Browns is? I know it's changed in terms of personnel, yeah, that, that's a, but they're losing a, culture, Mike. It's a good question, um, and and it's hard it's hard to get away from. They're basically in the front office. Um, the Haslam's listened to Paul De Podesta, um, who's well, was a baseball analyst. Um, in fact, he's the he's the um, Moneyball character, um, although he he isn't overweight and, and uh, nerdy. Um, I think they're going to bring in what's his name from the uh, Vikings, the assistant general manager, to be their general manager. And I think they'll be trying to Im implant that kind of culture on the team. But 
I think they fell prey to after the Shanty Brown, um, the Shanty Brown Sashi era. Sashi Brown? Sashi Brown, where he was, um, you know, assembling draft picks. Mm. There's that sense that you build a team by getting these great players all together. And I think your point as to culture is much more relevant. That first you have to build a culture and get the players to fit. And you mm. look at the great teams, um, you know, of, of the past couple of decades and, and primarily, I mean, they've had great players, but primarily they're built through culture. Um, the supporting players play better because of that culture. The, the star players buy into that culture and it sets an example for everybody. And I'm thinking, you know, of everything from the Drew Brees Saints to the Peyton Manning Colts to the yeah. New England Patriots with Brady. Um, you know, you, you can compare rosters and, and you'll see that the kind of the, um, kind of that the, uh, the one factor that's the same for all of them is that you're on the same page. Everybody on the team is on the same page. Mm. Okay, let's move on to, uh, well, you mentioned Drew Brees. One of the names, of course, in the last couple of weeks that uh, it had been suggested could be moving on because of his contract situation. But Sean Payton has come out in the last few days and then the organization has said that Brees is going to be a saint next season. So you can take him off the table. But the quarterback carousel is going to be interesting in the offseason. You've got Rivers almost certainly gone from the charges. Interesting connection or interesting stories connecting Tom Brady possibly with that gig. Uh, rumblings flying around there. A lot of rumors going on. Eli Manning, is he going to hang him up? Is he going to take a gig? Marcus Mariota has lost his gig in Tennessee, so will he stick around as a backup or bounce on? Uh, lots of different... Andy Dalton's another name on the market as well. So lots of different uh, quarterbacks or different landing places for, for those quarterbacks. What do you think will be the most notable move? Rivers seems to be... Rivers a, a seems lot. to be the, the one who's going to move. Um, uh, right now, I, I would look at two destinations um, for Rivers, and the one of one of them would be Oakland, where his kind of veteran toughness might appeal to John Gruden. Um, I wonder if Andy Dalton might appeal to John Gruden more than mm. most coaches. Um, as as well, uh, because that that would be a and 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 the other one might be Carolina. Strange as it seems, depending on mm. what Cam Newton decides to do, and I, you know, and I, I keep saying that Carolina can't really go forward until they know if they're going to have a fully healthy Cam Newton back and on board for the season with the with the new coaching staff and all. Um, if not, Philip Rivers might be a short uh, a stopgap for them. And I think too, you're going to watch the draft, and right now. If I were going to do a mock draft, which I don't want to do, I, I could see the five and the six spots. Miami taking Tua, which a lot of people are, are suggesting, um, you know, is, is, is going to be a no brainer. And, uh, Justin Herbert from Oregon going to, um, uh, Los Angeles Chargers with the sixth pick and both teams planning on starting the season with their veteran quarterbacks in place fits in, um, fits in um, Miami. Miami and Tyrod Taylor in San Diego. Now, the other place that, that, Rivers might be a, a consideration for would be Tennessee if Ryan Tannehill doesn't get signed to a new contract. But I cannot he's see sure, any way in the yeah. world they let Ryan Tannehill go. Exactly. Um, sure he's, he's such imagine. a good fit. He's such a good fit for what they want to do. Derek Henry as well, right? It, exactly. That yeah. deal done again, I mean, hey. money, money's always a problem, but, but for, you know, to go to Philip Rivers from Tannehill on paper might seem like a good move, but in reality would not be. What do the Cowboys do? They've got some conundrums in terms of. Well, he's got to pay Dak Phillips, uh, Dak Prescott. Um, I don't know. Amari Cooper as well? I don't see, yeah. Um, Amari, I think, you know, they'd probably want 
to keep. Uh, the question is what it will take to um, what it will take to sign him. And and Byron Jones is as attractive as he might be in the secondary because he's versatile and he's a very good player. Probably is the kind of guy that someone else is going to wind up paying him the big bucks and not Dallas, mm. um, unless Jerry Jerry's fallen completely, you know, in love with him, and the Cowboys have some way of circumventing the salary cap. I think, but but this is one of those where you know, for a guy like Amari Cooper, it might make sense to stay in this program at a somewhat of a discount for the team, simply because the upside of this is so good. The, ta- the Cowboys are you know a talented, loaded roster, and he's got a, a coach who appreciates the value of a number one receiver. Jadavian Cloud is another name as well. There. Pete Carroll said that the, the Seahawks <laughs> yeah. would love to re-sign him. Yeah, he wants to go play for a contender. <laughs> well, what's, what, 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 what more do you want than Seattle? I mean, you know, who, who do you, are you going to wait to see who wins the Super Bowl and then go to them? <laughs> you know, it, it's like if Seattle's not a contender, you know, then I'm, then I'm crazy. And, and you know that they're going to be a contender one way or the other because Russ is going to keep them in, in games. And if they mm. can build a defense anywhere close to what the Legion of Boom gave them, then, then they're automatically a contender. And Clowney would be a huge part of that. Um, you know, I, this is starting to get ridiculous you now with, with guys like Terrell Suggs, you know, and at the end of the season wanting, wanting to be like the NBA and go play with Shaquille O'Neal. Um, <laughs> but, you know, but, um, you know, and boy, and boy, didn't, didn't the Chiefs need Suggs too? Wasn't that a good signing? Suggs, I'd love it. Go, well, 30, Pieces. How, how is, old is Pieces now? It must be Pieces pushing, is 37, is 30, I think. 37, yeah, okay. Yeah. Love it. It's still bringing it. Still balling. Good to see. Right, uh, we've got the mailbag to come, but let's get into your top five, Iron Mike. Top five conference championship games of all time. Yeah, and boy, is that a good list. I mean, you know, that that's a tough one to to nail down. Um, the one <laughs> that's no your one way ever, of saying we've got yeah, to Yeah, it, it's going to be more than five. The one no one ever course. talks about, the Rams against Tampa in 99 season, Ooh, yeah, uh, 11, right. 11 to 6. Kurt Warner to Ricky Prohl for the touchdown with four minutes to go. Great show um, tough. Yeah, and you know that that's because it's completely what nobody thinks about when they think about the, those Rams teams. Yeah, sure. But I mean, yeah, sure. It was Sean King quarterback in Tampa, you know, and and it was and it was also it that was, was the game the, where the score, Mike. Can you tell me the score? See if you're, oh, just because I'm looking it up. So put you what? on the spot. What was the score at halftime? The score at halftime was like five three. Spot on five three. Amazing. Yeah, <laughs> yeah, because um, yeah, they had a safety. Um, yeah, no touchdowns and, in the whole game. And. Um, not until the last, the last one. Um, oh, that, oh, right. Is that how yeah, it was? Once? Ricky Prohl was the, you know, ah. I, and um, that was the game that Derek Thomas was driving to when he got in his car crash that, you know, wound up killing him. That was, that's the sad part of that game. Yeah. But, um, okay. In at number five, I've got the, um, the Minnesota New Orleans 2009 NFC championship, 31, 28 in overtime. Uh, the game that was more or less decided when Gary Anderson missed his first field goal of the season from 38 yards, which would have given them a 30 to 20 lead with, uh, basically two minutes to go. And then they came back to tie it, um, Chandler to, uh, Terrence Mathis and uh, won it in overtime when Morton Anderson hit a 38-yard field goal from virtually the same place that Gary Anderson had missed his. And the one thing I went and looked it up, and the one thing I had kind of forgotten about the game was the 70-yard pass from uh, Chandler to touchdown Tony Martin, although it wasn't for a touchdown. But but I remember that being a great, a great throw and catch. Um, in four, a kind of similar game in a way, um, but the uh, – 
Indianapolis Colts 38, New England 34 in the 06 um, AFC championship game. New England led that one 21-3 at one point and then 21-6 at the half. And um, obviously Indianapolis came back. But to me it's interesting, um, not only because Adam Vinatieri was kicking and Joseph Adai got the winning touchdown and they yeah, could have drafted Adai ahead of Lawrence Maroney, but but they took Maroney instead, the Patriots did. But that game's remembered for Rache Caldwell making two drops of passes, one of which would have been a touchdown and one of which he was uncovered on the top of the field and, and um, dropped the ball when Brady got it to him. And it had me thinking about the talent around players. You know, Brady took that team with Gaffney and, and uh, Caldwell and Troy Brown were his three receivers. Right. And, you know, and, and um, Peyton had Reggie Wayne and Marvin Harrison, although it was Dallas Clark who had the big game in that game, but it was a great game back and forth game, big rally, um, kind of like a version of the uh, Houston, Kansas city game uh, mm. a, a year ahead. And so moving into three is another one with, with Tom Brady, the 2015 AFC um, championship, 20 Denver, 20 new England, 18. That was the game where Brady got sacked four times, um, but got hit 17 times. Yeah. <laughs> uh, Demarcus Beware had seven quarterback hits <laughs> in that game, and Von Miller had four and two and a half sacks, and Malik Jackson had three. Um, but still, Brady, you know, only four sacks in that situation was pretty good by Brady. But still, <laughs> he, um, he got them back with a, a touchdown pass to Gronk, who wound up having like 140 yards in, in catches in that game. And then on the two-point conversion, which they had to go for to tie because Steven Goskowski had missed an extra point, um, which became a, a habit with him following this season, um, Brady rolled out to try to avoid the rush. And Gronk was literally open if he had been able to throw back across his body toward yes. the middle middle of the field. But he didn't see it, um, and he had to force a pass that, that got knocked. And the Denver um, Denver obviously won that game. Owen Daniels had two touchdowns that game, I was, and I was thinking about that because Owen Daniels was perfect for Peyton Manning, just like Jacob Tammy yeah, or, yeah. or Ken Dil- Dilger, you know, one of those guys who – you didn't notice until all of a sudden you've covered all their other receivers and, and Manning was throwing him two touchdown passes. Um, <laughs> it, it was, it was a great game. And, and it reminded me too of a game that didn't make it, but, but um, New Orleans and Minnesota 31, 28 overtime game, the bounty game in, in Oh yeah, nine. So yeah. I looked that one up. Favre wasn't sacked in that game. And they wow. only list six quarterback hits. Although the one that the worst one where he handed off, you know, and headed to the, he handed off to the left and just run, ran to the right and then got leveled yes. um, by, by uh, I think it was sharper, but I'm not sure. Um, but I remember that, you know, that was obviously not called as a penalty and it wouldn't be counted as a, um, as a uh, quarterback hit, but they really should have won that game. You know, they, they, um, that one boiled down. If you remember, they were in position to kick a, a long field goal, like a 50 yarder um, for the win and they called timeout, and the referees flagged them for having 12 men in the huddle. And knocked them out of – And that knocked them out of field goal range, yeah. And, and, then, then, and, they, 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 and then far forced the issue, is that right? And yeah, he, 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 um, he threw the ball in, an interception, if I remember right, on the last, yeah, yeah, yeah. On the last, uh, last play. So um, at, at number two is the catch. That was we forget sometimes that these weren't necessarily Super Bowl games, but that was the 1981 NFC Championship: San Francisco 28, Dallas 27, Montana um, 
an 83 yard drive, which was impressive enough, but it was third and three and, um, on the six yard line. And you, you remember he rolls to the right. Everybody's seen it. Um, he has to throw back to Dwight Clark. The play was designed to go to Freddie Solomon, um, who fell <laughs> and got up. So it was like, let's go to plan B. And he had to throw the ball over to tall Jones to get it to Dwight Clark. Um, so he pump fakes and then he, he just lofts it over to, too tall and Dwight Clark, who had a huge game, makes the um, makes the catch for the touchdown. And the winner is a double a double entry. Eighty six and eighty seven AFC Championship games. In eighty six, you had the drive. John Elway engineering a fifteen play ninety eight yard drive in the last five minutes of the game after um, Gene Lang fumbled the kickoff <laughs> so that they started on the two yard line, um, and, and that. <laughs> I still, I still think about that. Uh, apparently, the 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 key quote from that one was when they went into the huddle on the two yard line. Keith Bishop, who was a guard, said, "We got him right where we want him." That's right. Yeah, yeah. That's you're right. We're looking at <laughs> and then the <laughs> the, the following year, again, to Detroit and uh, Denver and Cleveland, thirty eight, thirty three, the fumble. Yeah, one's called uh, Ernest Spiner. They were on yeah. the six yard line. Uh, chance to tie the game on the eight-yard line, I think. Chance to tie the game. He gets stripped to the ball at the one-yard line by um, Jeremiah Castile. <laughs> How many times do we talk about Jeremiah Castile? Um, but it, it reminded me, too, um, El- and then obviously um, they took a safety and the final score was 38-33. Sammy Winder was a really good player. He was instrumental for Den- Denver in both of those wins. Um, you know, keep keeping plays going, running back. Um, it reminded me of how good how good he was. And so th- that double entry you were talking earlier on about the leg- legacy of losing in Cleveland. Yeah. It all goes back to those two years. And then yeah. uh, in '89, they again lost to Denver, although it wasn't a close issue in that case. It was 37-21. But that's what it goes down to. And that those two are my most memorable uh, NFC champion or uh, champ. Champ, conference championship games. Brilliant stuff. What a list, Mike. Uh, the fumble. Yeah, I was watching um, watching quite, uh, quite a few of the ones you mentioned actually again on you know NFL films and you know various different uh, documentaries they've they've done of them. And uh, Biner was fascinating because he had, was had a brilliant game, didn't he? he had oh yeah, almost, I think two hundred all round yards. Yeah, and he was a great run, he was and, a great yeah. running back, no question about and it. And when something like that happens to you know a player like that, always always fascinates me that that is of course inevitably the thing he's most remembered for, but. Uh, a hell of a player. And as I've told you before, and, and may mentioned on the, on the show in the past, recreating the catch with Montana and Clark at one of the tailgates at Wembley was uh, one of the highlights of, of my career. Didn't quite, <laughs> six nine was uh, two tall Jones's listed yeah. height. Um, yeah. So a couple of inches taller than me, Mike. <laughs> but I did, I did my best. I did yeah, he my wore best. those big cleats to make himself look taller. Yeah, I bet he had lips and issues as well. Did anyone ever check that? I don't know. Fine work, Mike. Fine work. Loving the top five. We'll roll out another one next week, of course. Uh, now, before we get to the mailbag, uh, I mentioned we've got some good ones in. From yeah, let's go. Uh, surreal places to watch or weird places uh, that you watch, the weirdest place you watched a game. Uh, Chris Martin. I'm not sure he's the Coldplay lead singer. He might be. I don't know. <laughs> Chris Martin is all I've got in front of me here. At the Grand Canyon, he watched a game. Presumably not live. Presumably he's watching it on. <laughs> I don't know. How's the reception in the Grand Canyon? <laughs> doesn't, doesn't say. Uh, pick up. Uh, maybe there's a pickup game going on there. Uh, Dean uh, says, surreal. Uh, I watched an NFL game in the maternity ward hours after my daughter was born. Mother and baby were asleep and I had no bed. So I took advantage of this opportunity by watching the Thursday night game on my phone. Well, does that. he say what game it is? 
He didn't say what game no, it was. I, I mean, you know, you'd have to name your daughter after you know, <laughs> after the star player in the game or something like that, you know. Uh, I love it. Just that it wasn't the game that Dick Ferguson had. Yeah, a- my daughter, <laughs> my daughter Tomlin and I. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> uh, I love it. The um, quite a lot of our old school. Uh, old school listeners who used to watch us back in the day on, on Channel 5 and Channel 4 with the late night games, Mike, we'd, we'd often get tweets in, wouldn't we, about uh, from dads who always selflessly uh, agree to do, offer their services up for the for the overnight shift on a, on a Sunday night to Monday morning. We'll yeah. So they were able to <laughs> sneak a few hours of our game. Yeah, we had, we had a lot of late night workers. Uh, I yeah, never really yeah. watched it in a weird place, I don't think, although some of the Super Bowl mm. parties I, I was attending were fairly weird. But um, I did one year watch it in New Zealand, which meant going down to the harbor in Auckland and settling in for a couple of beers and lunch. At at noon on Monday Monday New Zealand time, uh, watching it live. It was Seattle. It was, uh, it was the Seattle Green Bay Super Bowl, and, and I had a table full of businessmen in from Seattle sitting right next to me, and we were about the only people um, in, in this bar, yeah. wanting on a beautiful on a beautiful summer day. Um, what, what time was it? Sort of morning. It was noon on, on noon, noon. Yeah, yeah, just before noon on um, on Monday morning. It, fantastic, you know. It's it's a very civilized way to watch it. Like it, uh, yeah. Actually, uh, Ollie Gill, the OG, of course, who, uh, Australian, always talks about that. The amount of games that they've watched, uh, you know, mid morning in Oz on the beach. Uh, sounds like a good way to enjoy it. And uh, Nick Mason says, in the corner of a burger shack with a dislocated shoulder and a pint of beer. That's how you watch most games, isn't it, Mike? <laughs> um, <laughs> yeah, they just pop the shoulder in, and I come back. And you're to ready to roll. Um, Carl Morgan was rehearsing with his band last night and was streaming the Chiefs Texans game on his phone. I'm watching it while playing songs. Good band. I love that. I love that multitasking going Sample on. Sample Tony Romo's commentary into your music. Oh, that's a great shout. Uh, Russell says, hot tub on my iPad. First world problems, eh? Um, <laughs> this is a good one. Uh, Gav watched the 2014 Super Bowl uh, in a hotel lobby in uh, Tajikistan whilst they're on a month's in-country language training, learning Dari. Due yeah. to the time difference, kicked off at 3.30 a.m. local. So that's, uh, yeah, uh, an all-nighter. Um, and we'll leave the final word to Chris Noble at work in Scotch Corner Petrol Station on the A1. <laughs> Loving that. <laughs> uh, thanks for all of those. Uh, appreciate those guys. Uh, and in terms of the rest of the mailbag, let's get right into that, Iron Mike. So we'll go straight to Rakesh. Thanks for getting in touch. Are the Packers the real deal or just reliant on Rogers? handling off to Jones and passing to Adams. Interesting question. Isn't, isn't that the real deal? <laughs> what more does he point. want? <laughs> yeah, I, I think the Packers those. have a few problems. Um, uh, you know, he doesn't have a, a good second receiver or one that he trusts. Um, I don't think he targeted any of his other wide receivers more than twice in, in the game. Um, but – and defensively, they've got real strengths defensively, but they still seem to play a guessing game more than most coaches do. I think Mike Pettin wants to be Jim Schwartz. Um, but, but, yeah, that, that's the real deal. I mean, 14 and yeah. three, 14 and three isn't an accident, you know? Yeah, that's it. They seem to divide opinion, enigmatic team, the Packers this year, but they are what? Uh, a game away from the Super Bowl now. Uh, will a true running quarterback, ask Gary? ever win a Super Bowl. Now, I want to reference here our friend Osi, uh, Osi Manura, who uh, has gained quite a lot of attention this week and the last week for something he said on the BBC Highlight Show a couple of weeks back about Lamar Jackson saying, look, he's a, he's a hell of a player, but he's a quarterback like that isn't going to win a Super Bowl. And a lot of the, at the time, a lot of people s- criticized Osi for saying that. And 
this season anyways, he had the last laugh with, uh, with what went well, down yeah. in, in the divisional game. Uh, and OC was right in, in the sense that in order to win a Super Bowl or to get through the season, to get in that position to win a Super Bowl, your quarterback has to be able to do the little, the little everyday things right. Um, which means hitting hitting the the passes when he's supposed to hit them, you know, the, the shorter passes that that you need to go down. Which was always the problem with with your Mike Vicks and Randall Cunningham. So though you know they came very close. It, it's 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 when you say oh to win a Super Bowl, you know, if you get to the conference championship game and lose, or if you lose the Super Bowl, you're there. You know, it's it's a it's a fine distinction. Margin, sure. And and I think the problem for Lamar Jackson was not that Lamar Jackson couldn't play, but that Baltimore wasn't really equipped to come from behind and in a sense once you took them out of their game plan they 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 floundered um he didn't have the weapons to be able to work a pass first game and you know kansas city had a little easier time because they are a pass first team um so coming back from 24 down 24 nothing down was easier for them but when baltimore was down by two touchdowns i think they took their foot off the pedal a little too early um, and they they needed to they needed to try to re recapture the running game that got them there. And it wasn't Lamar's running; it was it was that they weren't they weren't getting the other backs in, well, Ingram, in, yeah, into it. They weren't you know. And and Tennessee, to their credit, I mean this this isn't all ball. Tennessee played very yeah. good defense. Yeah, you know sure. they, they did a great job. But but when you're playing Baltimore, the, you don't need to do what teams do against Tennessee or try have tried to do against Tennessee in the first couple of rounds, which was, which was to play back and make them run, you know, say, okay, we're going to let Derrick Henry run. And can you beat us? Um, if you do, you know, and not give up a 50 yard pass to Khalif Raymond, which seems to happen in almost every game, one catch for 45 or 50 yards. Um, so I, I wouldn't blame Lamar Jackson, you know, for that, for that loss per se. And I think he's, only going to improve, you know, if they get him, if they get him um, a real cross the field kind of receiver, mm. uh, first down kind of Anquan Bolden type. If you think Ooh. back to him with the Ravens, yeah. uh, that would be a big step forward. And also, I think it's, it's worth pointing out, for what it's worth, that referring to Lamar Jackson as a, a running quarterback, which I know our, our listener wasn't, but those that do, uh, he. 37 touchdown passes is the most by any quarterback in the NFL this season, right? So, yeah, yeah, and he's, he's, he's far I mean, more than just a running yeah, he's a good court. He's a good passing quarterback. He's an accurate passer. Um, I, I'm not, I, I've argued how many reads he's given in this offense because I think most of the time they're, they're fairly, it's a fairly quick thing because they're working off play action, but that's true of any play at, play action offense um you know you're going to only have one or maybe two reads because your other players are involved in selling the play action um so i I don't have a problem with with lamar jackson you know in that sense i I liken him to colin kaepernick and remember kaepernick took the 49ers to the super bowl you know where he only um yeah or um and where they look you know they um uh, they lost late and he took them to the NFC championship where they lost to Seattle when Richard Sherman, uh, knocked that pass away from Crabtree in, in the corner of the end zone. So, you know, it, it's, it's not impossible. It, we can overstate this, um, I think a, a little bit, um, because I think it's more a question of the offense than the quarterback in this case. We've got one more for the road, I might. One more for the road from Will Thomas. Thanks for this, Will. Uh, love the idea that J-Bell uh, had told us on the pod, J-Bell on last Friday's pod, that OC 
uh, had a coach that uh, said that a coach has to embody the city that his team is in. This works. Parcells is New York. Shula is Miami. Gibbs is Washington, et cetera, et cetera. There must be more. So let's uh, have a look at the list of <laughs> well, body by the coach. Yeah, you know, when I answered, Will, um, the first thing I said was Parcells is not New York. Parcells is, is New Jersey or Long yeah. Island. Parcells yeah, yeah. was perfect for the New York Jets when he was at the Jets, but but not really New York. If I'm thinking of New York Giants, I'm thinking of like Steve Owen or or Jim Lee Howell or, or probably Ali Sherman even as being a, a kind of New York Giants kind of coach. And and part of that though is you have to figure out what the what the what the city is, not what like the history of the team in the city is. So if you're looking at coaches that reflect their city, I mean, I would say like if you're Chicago, it's Mike Ditka. Mm. Um, if it's Cleveland, it's Paul Brown, or maybe Giants Sh- fans in Jersey though, aren't there? Oh yeah, no, I yeah. I know that. Yeah, but the Giants, New York, is we're talking about who reflects the image of New York. Yes, and 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 Parcells reflects the image of part of New York, but not Manhattan. Got it. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> let's yeah. put it that. Let's put it that way. Um, you know, I would I would think that Shula is more of a Cleveland guy. Um, than a Miami guy, and Jimmy Johnson to me is more of a Miami kind of guy. Um. Um, I said to him, uh, Bill Walsh in San Francisco, when he was wearing those pastel sweaters, you know, those pullovers. Oh, nice. I love them. Very, yeah. San, very San Francisco. Take Al Davis. Is Al Davis Oakland? Was Al Davis Los Angeles? Ooh, Al Davis question. might well have been Las Vegas. But what Definitely Al Davis Vegas. was, was Rada. <laughs> yeah, that's <laughs> he, he, it. Yeah. Um, now, some, some others just quickly occurred to me, kind of. Um, um, Bud Grant is Minnesota. Mm. I mean, Bud Grant reflects Minnesota completely. He was from Minnesota. He coached in Winnipeg. Then he coached in, in, in Minneapolis. In Minneapolis. Um, yeah, so cold-weather coaches, definitely. Cold-weather coach, absolutely. Houston, I think of Bum Phillips. Yes, yeah, you yeah. Know, it, um, Dallas, not Jimmy Johnson, but Jerry Jones. <laughs> Jerry Jones <laughs> is so Dallas. No coach yeah. can be anything. The coaches in, in Dallas are, are Cliff Barnes, and Jerry is, is JR. <laughs> you know, um, oh, Buddy Ryan's pretty good for Philly, although Dick Vermeule's pretty good for Philly as well. Mm, highly um, emotional. Lou Saban was great for Buffalo. Curly Lambeau is Green Bay. Mm. Um, you know, no, no question about that. Atlanta, Dan Reeves was a pretty good fit for Atlanta. You could see him jumping into his pickup truck after practice and, you know, going to watch NASCAR or something. <laughs> um, and, you know, trying to think like who, who personifies Indianapolis? Was it Tony Dungy or Jim Caldwell? Because they basically are very bland. <laughs> and Indianapolis yeah. is very bland. I don't Dungy's know. more cerebral than black. Yeah. Right? Jerry Glanville coached the Oilers, you know, but if he probably yeah. could have fit in in Tennessee as well. Um, he was kind of like Bum Phillips light. Uh, McVeigh is quite LA actually, I guess, thinking about who is? it. McVeigh is quite LA. So. McVeigh's kind of LA, yeah. Yeah. I, I you know that that that's pretty good. Um was Bruce Coslett or Rich Cotite more of a uh, more of a Long Island jet? <laughs> that, that to me. And and trying to think of one though for LA was really Barb Waterford was about the only one I could come up with who fit LA because he was married to Jane Russell, the movie actress. Oh, cool. So he had gone completely LA um, as, as a star quarterback and, and Seattle, I think, you know, Pete Carroll's funny because Pete Carroll's personality could almost apply to lots of places. But I think mm. Mike Marks <laughs> would Marks. fit the city of Seattle. Mike Marks could be like working for Microsoft when he wasn't, when he wasn't <laughs> coaching. You know? Quite possibly is now, to be honest. Yeah. Uh, lovely stuff, Mike. Thanks for rolling that in. 
Uh, yeah, I, I, the, you know, real, real thanks uh, to Will Thomas for that. I think that was a really, it was a really good pickup from what OC said and, and J Bell, you know, and um, just another, just another, um, another reminder of how lucky we are to have those two guys. Big time. Saluting them, saluting you, Iron Mike. Enjoy the championship games. See you guys. See you, mate. Lovely stuff. And of course, I'm Mike here each and every Wednesday for the deep dive. Let's roll things swiftly along and look back at the college championship game with none other than Ben Isaacs. Benedict Isaacs. So we've been talking on the show about strangest places to watch football. Where, before we get into the college, unless you watched the college championship in a strange place, did you? No, 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 I didn't. I, I, I did it in my, uh, in my living room, like a normal human being. Hmm. I don't think I've ever watched it somewhere really strange. Um, but I did once watch the semi-final of a rugby world cup, um, upside down in a hotel room in, uh, Beaumont, Texas. Do I want to ask why you are upside down? Uh, because I'd got, um, I'd got an infected spider bite in Southeast Texas and I had to, I had to keep the leg elevated and it was about 3 a.m. And none of the TV channels in the hotel room. I was, I was on a, I was on a trip writing about Texas and there was another girl on the trip who was from Wales. She wanted to watch the semi-final. It was when Wales lost to France. And I, because my ankle had got so swollen, I had to keep it elevated. So I was kind of lying on the floor with my foot up on the bed, watching, watching this Rugby World Cup semi-final in the heart of, you know, football country. Amazing. Um, and it was uh, like two minutes before the end, the, the dodgy stream just froze. I think we watched part of it with like a, an ad for, um, some sort of erectile dysfunction product slap bang in the middle of the screen that we just couldn't get rid of. <laughs> um, so yeah, I'm, I'm never going to top that one. I don't think you, I don't think you ever think any, any of us ever will. I think that is what <laughs> Ollie would draw a line under that item right now for Ben Isaacs with his, uh, hotel room in Texas. All right. Let's get down to business. Oh, I, I just, I just got to say we, we went into this hotel and it had a giant thing outside, but what is that? And it was the 10 commandments <laughs> right outside the hotel. <laughs> I'm amazing. not, I'm not kidding. I want to stay in this hotel. I want to go there. Oh, we're going to go there. Yeah. Uh, anyway. Wasn't really close to the end, was it? I mean, the line was quite tight, the, around five, five and a half. And there were a lot of shops coming in on Clemson because of their record. And uh, for reasons you pointed out, that their big game mentality, uh, even though LSU were the favorites, I wasn't really that close after all. It started that way, though. Tight first quarter, but it was all the damage was done as far as Clemson were concerned in the second quarter. Yeah, I, I thought, um, you know, since, since the semifinals happened, I thought this is, this is going to be a one score game because LSU are better, but Clemson have been here before. They have done it. They've got so many players who are used to doing this. They've forgotten how to lose. They haven't lost for two years. Um, and the, the key was always going to be Clemson slowing down LSU's incredible offense, slowing down Joe Burrow. And they did slow them down. It was just, it was only temporary. They forced four punts in the first five possessions. And they ended up being 17-7 up in the second half. But once LSU started to roll, then they, they pulled away. It was 28-17 at half time, And they, they just never looked back. Like Clemson got a little bit closer, but it never felt like they were going to, that they were going to catch them. Once, once it became an offensive showcase, Clemson, as good as they are on offense, just didn't seem like they were going to be able to hang with LSU. I mean, 
Joe Burrow, I don't know what more we can, we can say about him, but he's had 60 touchdown passes in 15 games, which is unreal. That is the, that is the record through five touchdowns yesterday, ran for another. It was one of the great championship game performances and he was finding it hard going against that Clemson defense, but it was like he figured something out when, um, there was a 52-yard uh, touchdown pass to Jamar Chase in the first quarter, and it seemed that at that point that they'd started to see things in that Clemson defense. They'd started to see the tells. They'd started to see where the, where the coverage would be open, and then they just managed to steamroll a very, very good Clemson defense. Well, you talked about Clemson's remarkable run, and that was something that some of the key protagonists got into after the game. Trevor Lawrence had never lost a game, right? That's uh, yes, it. He's not lost since high school. And even then, that was a, that was a crazy upset mm. um, because I think he'd won something like 30 games in a row in high school, had won two state championships in Georgia, then unexpectedly lost. So it's, it's, it, losing for him must feel really weird. Must feel odd. And Dave Sweeney as well, saying it's been a long time since I've stood in front of uh, reporters with a loss, talking about a, a team. So uncharacteristic for them. But as far as the, the future bodes for, for, uh, for Clemson, are they going to be there or thereabouts again? Or is this a sense of this is the end of an era, end of a, end of a window? If I had to predict it and looked at what we were talking about on this corresponding week in 12 months' time, I would say we're talking about... Trevor Lawrence winning another national championship with Clemson mm. and saying, what will they do post Trevor Lawrence? Mm. I think the next 12 months, Clemson's going to be absolutely fine. They are still loaded. They've still got another year of Trevor Lawrence. I, th- I would be, I mean, because the conference they play in the ACC right now is pretty weak. The teams that should be good, like the University of Miami and Florida State are really down. So Clemson should be able to walk that conference they should be unbeaten and they will, they will be in the playoffs again next year. Whereas Clemson, whereas LSU, LSU beat five of the top eight teams this season, which is kind of unheard of that you would have to kind of run that gauntlet. They're not going to have Joe Burrow next season. They're currently ranked something like fourth or fifth favorites to win the national championship next year. Whereas Clemson with the, with the bookmakers right now, they're clear number one. Reading an article suggesting that if, Lawrence was eligible this year for the draft. This is would mm. he have gone one overall ahead of Burrow? Um, I think he's a better quarterback than Joe Burrow, but Joe Burrow has had the sort of transcendent season this year that it would be difficult for a team to overlook. If mm. if they were both eligible right now and um, you were the Cincinnati Bengals, it would be very difficult to pass up Joe Burrow because of the magic he's produced this year. But Trevor Lawrence has been. At, you know, very close to the, of the top of the kind of quarterback tree for a few seasons now. But he's perhaps never been considered to be the number one guy. Joe Burrow this year, um, Tua Tungavailoa last year. And I, I think that Trevor Lawrence will be a better NFL quarterback. Ooh. But if they were being, if they were both in this year's draft, I think Burrow would still go number one. One more for you, Ben. When were you watching the game on Monday night? Mm-hmm. Tuesday morning, uh, glass half full, glass half empty. Uh, and the president and the first lady were unveiled to uh, the crowd. And they generally got a pretty good reception, didn't they? Were you amongst those cheering them both? <laughs> <laughs> um, I was not. Um, really? I remain politically neutral of course. when it, when it of course. comes to, um, when it comes to college football, partly because I like to go to college football games. And if you are in the South, which is obviously the college football hotbed, it's probably not 
too good an idea to criticize the Republican Party or anything they do because it is very much Trump country down there. Um, that's not to say that every single student or every single uh, fan in those in those stadiums will be a Trump supporter, but chances are, if you if you, if they if it was if you had to pick which side they would come out on, it would be Trump's. I wasn't surprised that he got those cheers. So he knew that people knew that as well because that's a gamble, isn't it? When you are, uh, you know, when you're not just Trump, but but I guess any president that has pretty. Uh, even money approval disapproval ratings yep. and I, I believe in trump's case that they're, they're kind of typically lower than the many of his predecessors in terms of you know hiring disapproval although obviously he's got a lot of storage support so it's a hell of a gamble isn't it to come out in front of eighty thousand odd there and however many millions watching around the world that's uh that's a you know a brave yeah. call presumably his people knew it was going to be uh uh, a loaded deck as it were yeah and he yeah he doesn't he doesn't come out for many of these things and it'd be very different if he was at kind of um if he was at a big nfl game i mean let's say if he was at the nfc championship yes um in northern california i don't think that would go down quite so well what would happen if he went to cardiff don't answer um, that we're gonna get taken off air if we do um i do remember the, the pope the pope got a good reception at ninian park he did a big thing at ninian park once and that went down very well um, there you go so there you go uh that is the that's the precedent we need to to qualify what uh, kind of reaction trump will get uh great stuff ben look after yourself what do you what happens now ben for the end of the college season obviously you're going to be a, a key part of our show and in the off season we've got to start looking towards the draft and the xfl's coming i know you're going to be excited about that and that's available on espn i do, uh, I, I am when when that when it was announced that that was going to be on espn player i thought oh i'm going to watch too much of this xfl oh my oh, god we're going to be talking about it uh, talking but, and watch it but yeah, it's, it's the draft. The draft, the draft started on Tuesday morning, as far yeah. as I'm concerned. It is, it is all go right now. So. Well, it's great it... to have you part of the team because as we, uh, wrap up the season, of course, the NFL never sleeps. And it's one of the things it's become a three, six, five year round league, hasn't it? So we are going to start in the off season. We'll be coming at you regularly and we're going to be talking up some of the key names that you're going to be seeing in the NFL next season and who better than Ben to give you his perspective, his assessment of those players, not just about Tua and Burrow, but some of the other players that are going to go in the first, all of the other players are going to go in the first round, but other players that you might not have heard of, uh, but could be landing with your team very soon. So great to have you as part of the team. And of course, uh, we'll roll you back to some NFL chat sooner rather than later. Look after yourself, bud. Thanks very much. And um, you are always my first overall pick. Oh, Back at you, back at you. In my hotel, I'm going to do a big, big uh, statue of Ben Isaacs. <laughs> well, just stay away from the, foot. stay away from the poisonous spiders. That's all I can say. <laughs> all right, take care. All right, bye. That's it from us for this Wednesday show. We're back Friday to preview the championship games. Looking forward to that at the NT show. If you want to get in touch with us on social media, fire questions in for next week's mailbag and lots of chat going on all the way through the week. We'll see you Friday. Bye for now. Podcast Network.